This is History 2311, Week 11A, Reagan and the Right. previous years when we had this class in an actual classroom, I used to do a thing at the end of most classes where students would hand in index cards where they might make a comment or ask questions, ask me questions, maybe about the lecture or about anything else. One question that I would often get as a U.S. history professor is, who is your favorite president? Now, I'm actually self-conscious. I worry that I spend too much time in this class talking about the presidents. I know that people want to talk about the presidents. They find them interesting. But I worry that organizing the course around a series of presidents imposes a kind of top-down structure. It emphasizes political history over all the other aspects of history and, and maybe leads us to overlook other crucial, critical stories. But it's a fair question. Who is my favorite president? I mean, I can't endorse any of them without some reservations. If you ask me who the greatest presidents were in terms of what they did for the United States, that's that's pretty easy. I say George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, there's one per century. Now, if you ask me who the most interesting presidents are, the ones that I like to talk about in history class, I would probably say, Teddy Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, both of whom I've talked about a lot because they are fascinating characters and they kind of embody both good and bad qualities of their age. That's still not the same thing as favorite. In my lifetime, the presidential election that that surely meant the most to me was the election of Obama in 2008. Whatever you think of the presidency that followed, I won't disavow or disown the optimism and importance of that election. But the president that I once had the most affection for is the first person that I can remember being president. And maybe because of that, sort of my default sense of what an American president should be like. And that is Ronald Reagan. Check out that slogan at the bottom of the poster. It's pretty catchy, huh? You likely have a sort of sense of my own politics from my lectures, and this choice might be surprising to you. Certainly today in 2021, I consider myself a progressive and indeed a socialist. But I was just nine years old when Reagan was first elected and 17 years old when he left office. And my political commitments have changed a lot since then. With the benefit of age and hindsight, I think the Reagan presidency was very damaging. And many of the worst tendencies and problems plaguing the United States today can be traced back to the neoliberalism of the 1980s. But I don't disown or disavow my conservative teenage self or my fondness for Reagan. I just really like the guy. And this points to a real challenge of doing recent history. It's why many historians avoid studying the periods of their own lifetimes. 
what do you do when the history you study with the benefit of hindsight doesn't match up with your memories or your lived experience? Now, I don't want to make this lecture about me or about my adolescence, God knows, but making sense of the Reagan years and the seeming triumph of conservatism in the 1980s, call it the new right, the right turn, the Reagan revolution, making sense of that requires a kind of double vision. On the one hand, I want to be clear-eyed about you know, what I consider the cruelty of the American right and all the damage it has done. But on the other hand, we won't understand the era. We won't understand Reagan's success unless we also take seriously what it was that you know, a 10-year-old me, a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old me liked about the guy. So to begin with, who were the new right? A combination of domestic and international dislocations in the late 1970s created anxiety among Americans and created a perfect storm for the beleaguered administration of Jimmy Carter and a perfect opportunity for the conservative movement we come to call the new right. First of all, there were economic problems. A combination of high inflation and high unemployment, which traditional economic theory says you shouldn't have both at the same time, discredited the liberal approach to the economy. The energy crises of 1973 and 1979, in which oil and gas prices spiked and gas had to be rationed in the United States, along with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, and the Iranian hostage crisis all provoked fears that the United States was weak, that it could no longer impose its will on the world. And of course, this was all in the context of the larger tumult of the 1960s and 70s, the civil rights movement, the upheavals of 1968, the terrible defeat in Vietnam, the Watergate crisis, which brought down the Nixon presidency. All of these things made Americans feel beleaguered, resentful, unhappy about their country and its future. And all of these things contributed to the election in 1980 of former actor, former corporate spokesman, former governor of California, Ronald Reagan. Now, from a distance of 40 years, there is no denying that Reagan reshaped the nation's agenda and political language more effectively than any president since Franklin Roosevelt. He changed the terms of debate on issues ranging from taxes to government spending to national security, crime, welfare, traditional values. Reagan framed the debate and put his liberal opponents on the defensive. He also cemented a new coalition of voters. I've talked a couple of times about the big picture of American political trends in the 20th century. Encourage you to think not about individual elections, but about long-term coalitions like the New Deal coalition that led to democratic dominance for the middle third of the 20th century from 1932 up to about 1968. But then that coalition came apart in the upheavals of the late 1960s. That era of democratic dominance would be followed by an era of Republican dominance. Now, Richard Nixon won two victories in 68 and 72 while the Democrats were in disarray. But it was really Ronald Reagan that cemented the new Republican formula, the coalition that came to be called the new right. So what was the new right? Well, I put it in quotation marks here because one of the most important parts of the so-called new right was in fact the old right, traditional fiscal conservatives, what you might consider big business interests. I love this source. This is an LP, that is to say a record back from the days of vinyl records that you could buy 
called Ronald Reagan Speaks Out Against Socialized Medicine. In between his career as a movie actor in the 40s and 50s and getting into politics in the mid to late 1960s, Reagan was a corporate spokesperson for General Electric and other large companies. And his most consistent political commitment all through this period was to corporate interests. What do corporate interests want? Well, the big issue for big business in the 1970s was what it always is. They wanted lower taxes, they wanted less government regulation. In the New Deal years and after, government had stepped in to solve the economic crisis and had taken more and a more active role in the economy. As the economy slowed and stagnated in the 1970s, fiscal conservatives argued that government intervention in the form of taxes and government regulation only raised business costs and eliminated jobs. And Reagan had been making this case since the 1950s. He made it as a spokesman for GE, and he said it again in his inaugural address as president in 1981. He said, in our present crisis, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. So a big part of the new right was the old right, but the new right coalition had newer aspects too. A second part of the new right coalition is people we call neoconservatives, which just means new conservatives. And these new conservatives were former liberals, by and large, disillusioned by the perceived failures of the Great Society, the Johnson years, alienated by social activism and the upheavals of the 1960s and 70s. My lecture last week on New York in the 1970s traced just one path towards neoconservatism, how former liberals like Ed Koch got tough on crime and turned against kind of Johnson era social programs. But many neoconservatives were animated more by foreign policy concerns than by domestic issues. The neocons believed in an assertive anti-communist foreign policy. And so they had been perfectly at home in the Democratic Party of John F. Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson. But as the Democratic Party wrestled with the failure of the war in Vietnam and anti-war elements became more prominent in the Democratic Party, the Democrats ran an anti-Vietnam war candidate in 1972, George McGovern, and Jimmy Carter pardoned all Vietnam draft evaders on the very first day of his presidency. As the Democratic Party kind of splintered over the Vietnam War, the staunch cold warriors, the anti-communists, felt less and less at home there, and many of them moved towards the Republican Party. So that became another important element of neoconservatism and the turn of the new right. The neoconservatives also did something that the old big business conservatives uh, rarely did, which is they linked economic issues like lowering taxes and fighting inflation to more nebulous social and cultural issues like public morality and crumbling respect for authority or God. And in so doing, they forged an alliance between the fiscal conservatives and a new or not new, but newly assertive religious right. And the religious right is really the third strand of the new right or modern conservatism. Thinking of people like Reverend Jerry Falwell, who founded the Moral Majority, television preachers like Jim Baker and Pat Robinson, also anti-feminists like Phyllis Schlafly, who led the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment, and anti-gay activists like Anita Bryant. And all of these people preached in the 1970s and 80s against 
sexual permissiveness, against feminism, against abortion, against gay rights with great success. I said in the 1968 lecture, I talked about how the feminist movement declared that the personal is political and it organized women around a host of issues that had not previously been seen as part of the political arena. But in the 1970s and 80s, the new right did the same. Things that had in the past been seen as private issues, as personal, like gender roles, like sexuality, like prayer, became the focus of a powerful political movement. People on the right often complain about, quote, identity politics, but what the religious right practiced was a form of identity politics, except instead of defining themselves as gay voters or feminist voters, they were Christian voters or pro-life voters. And then the last, the biggest, and the most nebulous group of Reagan supporters were the large number of working class Democrats who defected from their party to vote for Reagan and the Republicans in the 1980s. This included white Southerners, many of whom had split with the Democrats over civil rights back in the 60s, and some who had voted for Nixon, some who had voted for George Wallace. But it also included white working class residents of the Rust Belt, the de-industrialized Northeast. And this term, Reagan Democrats, indicates that in the 1980s, it was still a novelty for working class Americans to vote Republican. The shift of white working class voters was the key to Reagan's realignment of the political map. And electoral politics ever since has been disproportionately about keeping or winning back these voters. We don't call them Reagan Democrats anymore. We just call them Republicans. Folks called Reagan the great communicator. Nobody considered him a great intellect or a hard worker or a details guy but he was great on television. He was great at giving a speech, at telling a story or a joke. And very few people, even his political enemies, were immune to his folksy charm, his gravelly voice, or the twinkle in his eye. As you see here, Reagan had been speaking into microphones since the 1930s. One of his very first jobs was that he did play-by-play -play announcement of baseball games on the radio. And how it worked in those days was that Reagan was in the studio. He couldn't actually see the baseball game, but they sent out the box scores by telegraph or ticker tape. So he was just getting the most bare bones description of the game. Strike, ball, strike, base hit, that kind of thing. And then his job was to pretend he could see the game and describe it vividly over the air. Here comes the pitch and it's a line drive straight to second so that listeners could recreate the game in their mind. I love that. And, and in a way that was still Reagan's job as president in the 1980s. Reagan addressed himself not to facts, not to political realities, but to Americans' imaginations. And Reagan was always at his very best when he was assuaging Americans' fears or soothing their sorrows after a tragedy or calling them together to imagine some grand national purpose. He was very good at ad-libbing when he was shot by a would-be assassin in 1981. Uh, he told his wife, Nancy, as they were wheeling him into the hospital in range of TV cameras and microphones, he said, honey, I forgot to duck. Or... Uh, the speech that I absolutely remember watching as a kid 
his eloquent and poetic eulogy for the seven astronauts killed in the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger. During the Trump presidency, people often compared Trump to Reagan. And I know there are superficial similarities in that you know, Trump was a TV star and he was a performer. And in his own way, he's a natural ham. Uh, and because Reagan remains so beloved by Republicans, he's sort of become the gold standard to which Republican presidents are all judged, sort of like Johnson wanting to measure up to Franklin Roosevelt. But I don't see a lot of commonality between Reagan and Trump, not in their character anyway. For all his faults, Reagan always addressed himself to the best aspects of the American people. While Trump, I would say, almost invariably plays to Americans at their worst. Trump took Reagan's slogan. He promised to make America great again. But it was never clear that Trump actually thought America was great or that he has any understanding of why it was great or what historically was great about it. I mean, I'm obviously editorializing here, but I think that Trump lowered America, that Trump cheapened its history with everything that came out of his mouth. While Reagan, his policies aside, always addressed himself to America's loftiest ideals, to its best dream of itself. And Reagan's greatest moments were not his policies or achievements, they were his speeches, bits of poetic rhetoric, often not even written by him, but delivered beautifully at exactly the moment the nation needed them. Okay, but what were his policies? What did Reagan actually do? What kinds of policies did the so-called Reagan revolution entail? Well, upon being elected, Reagan wasted little time before moving to cut taxes, also to cut domestic spending and to deregulate, to cut back on the regulation of the economy. Reagan convinced Congress to pass the largest tax cuts in American history, a five-year cut of something like $750 billion, including a 25% reduction in personal income tax. The Reagan tax cuts were lopsided or regressive in that they clearly favored the country's wealthiest citizens and largest corporations. I think I mentioned that back in the 50s, the top tax rate had been 91%, which is amazing by modern standards. By 1980, the top tax rate was 71%. And in 1981, Reagan lowered that to 50. And in 1986, they reduced that again to 28%. They also indexed the brackets to inflation so that less income would be covered over time. But Reagan promised that all these cuts would actually increase government revenue because he said they would stimulate private investment, the benefits of which would trickle down to the mass of Americans. And this was the central idea of what was called supply side economics. The argument is that tax cuts make the economy grow and that the rich will invest their money to create jobs. And this in turn lowers unemployment and increases, doesn't reduce federal revenue. We've already seen in this course all through the century that this is a dubious proposition. In general, the rich are rewarded for cutting jobs, not creating them. And many people at the time, including Republicans in the early 1980s, were dubious about supply side theory. Bob Dole called the tax cut a, uh, quote, riverboat gamble. And George Bush, this is George H.W. Bush before becoming Reagan's vice president, ridiculed supply side economics as voodoo economics. 
The Reagan tax cuts were also accompanied by deep spending cuts on domestic programs. The government eliminated thousands of public service jobs. It slashed unemployment insurance, welfare benefits, food stamps. Grants for college students became student loans. And they cut deep into the programs established by the Great Society of the 1960s. But I should say that while many programs were shrunk, very few were scuttled altogether. The majority of voters in these years supported budget cuts in principle, but when the chips were down, people wanted to continue the social programs from which they themselves benefited. And Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, for instance, all these New Deal programs, especially the ones beloved by politically active seniors, were not cut. The programs Reagan cut were usually the Great Society programs created by Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s food stamps, school lunches, low-income housing, all programs designed to help the young, to help minorities, to help the urban poor. Uh, Reagan also cut environmental protection, uh, cut the budget of the Environmental Protection Agency, spending on the environment, got rid of environmental protection laws put in place by Johnson, Nixon, and Carter. So these were the main casualties of the Reagan revolution. Reagan and the New Right also inaugurated, or I guess re-inaugurated, an era of hostility between the federal government and organized labor. Just a few months into Reagan's presidency, PATCO, which is the Union of Air Traffic Controllers, went on strike, shutting down all the airports in the country. And Reagan wasted little time before firing all 11,000 of them and banning them from federal employment for life. This destroyed the Air Traffic Controllers Union, but more than that, it sent a powerful signal to other corporations and employers, and private employers took increasingly harsh stands in these years against their own unionized workers, firing strikers instead of negotiating with them, confident that the government would support them and they would not suffer repercussions. And this, combined with deindustrialization, the decline of industrial manufacturing jobs that I talked about last week, really knocked the legs out from under the labor movement. In the 1950s, at the high point of the Treaty of Detroit, one third of American workers were union members. By the time Reagan left office, only 11% of non-government workers were represented by unions. So the big picture is that Reagan's economic legacy was a polarization of wealth and poverty. Look at 1980 on this now familiar graph. That's the turning point where inequality began to grow again. By the mid 1990s, the richest 1% of Americans owned 40% of the nation's wealth, which was twice their share 20 years earlier. The decade saw substantial economic growth, but the wealth created was concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. By the end of the 1980s, as many Americans were living in poverty, as had been living in poverty in 1964. So Reagan had effectively erased all the gains made by Johnson's war on poverty. Cuts to public housing, along with cuts in welfare, drastic cuts to hospitals, and also services for the mentally ill, also led to a dramatic rise in the number of homeless people on the streets of American cities, on the streets and also in the criminal justice system. Now, in the arena of social and cultural issues, the Reagan revolution was much less dramatic. Reagan gave big business, the fiscal conservatives, the tax cuts they wanted, but to the dismay of the religious right, 
the White House never really made a consistent effort on behalf of a conservative social agenda. I mean, Reagan made the kinds of speeches that the religious right wanted to hear, but he turned out to be a pragmatist on things like abortion, public prayer, busing. He was not willing to spend political capital to move these issues forward. The campaign to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment was successful in 1983, but other than that, the religious right was largely stymied in its social agenda in these years. And it's funny considering how much conservatives revere Reagan today in retrospect, because all through the 1980s, they were complaining that he wasn't conservative enough, that he had turned out not to be a conservative at all. The picture on this slide is just a snapshot from the culture war of the 1980s. This is Dee Snyder, the lead singer of a pretty silly old rock group called Twisted Sister, testifying at congressional hearings about vulgar and explicit lyrics in popular music. And these hearings, the PMRC hearings, are what led to the warning labels that still exist on albums and CDs and so on. And the woman in the center is Tipper Gore, the wife of then Senator, later Vice President Al Gore. Mostly I just like these photographs because of the lighting and the way that both Dee and Tipper have these beautiful halos of big blonde 80s hair that catches the light just so. But even if the Reagan government didn't do all the things that social conservatives wanted, a government can also do great harm by not acting. And one of the darkest effects of the era's social conservatism was the Reagan administration's very slow, very reluctant response to the AIDS epidemic. In 1981, hospitals in Southern California started reporting multiple cases of a previously rare lung infection, along with some unusual aggressive forms of what seemed like cancer. And previously healthy young men were suddenly dying in just weeks or months. Because the first known victims were gay men, this syndrome was initially called gay-related immune deficiency or GRID. At the same time in New York, heroin addicts and intravenous drug users started dying from mysterious ailments that they called junkie pneumonia or the junkie flu. In September, 1982, the Centers for Disease Control used the term AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome for the first time. By 1983, there was a full-blown epidemic in gay communities in California and New York, and also among homeless people and intravenous drug users. Now, the fact that this disease appeared first in these communities powerfully shaped the cultural and the political response to it. It took a long time for straight America, for middle America, to take this seriously. It also took a while just to identify that these deaths were related. As it became clear that something terrible was happening, a lot of people's impulse was to blame the victim, to call this a gay plague, even God's judgment on homosexuals and drug users. And then fears that this could be spread through casual contact led to hysterical calls for quarantining gay people and locking up the homeless and banning kids who were HIV positive from school. Now, the disease was clearly mysterious, and the Reagan administration can't really be faulted for not understanding it in, say, 1982, 1983. But the government remained silent on the disease until the epidemic was well underway. Reagan did not say the word AIDS until 1985. And this combination of ignorance, prejudice, 
And even a misguided sense that any effort to make gay sex safer or to make intravenous drug use safer would somehow be seen as condoning or promoting those, quote, lifestyles. Because of this, the government took very few active measures to contain the spread of AIDS. It even blocked the Surgeon General and the CDC from speaking out on the epidemic. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to you, or distributing condoms, etc., until 1986, after tens of thousands of people had died. And of course, eventually it would be millions. Turning now to foreign policy, I want to talk about the Iran-Contra affair and the end of the Cold War. When Reagan first came to office, he was seen as a ferocious anti-communist. Reagan's anti-communist credentials went back to the early 1950s when he was an actor and he aided HUAC in its hunt for communists in Hollywood. For a few years in the 1970s, it seemed as if the Cold War was thawing. There was a period of what was called detente, a relaxation of tensions between the US and the Soviet Union, and some progress was made on treaties to limit the nuclear arms race. But by 1980, even before Reagan's election, the Cold War was clearly back on. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1980, and the United States pulled out of the SALT II Treaty, one of these arms reduction treaties. They also led a boycott of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. When Reagan came to power, he said that containment, which had been the basis of American policy towards the Soviets since the 1940s, he said that containment was immoral and that the United States must do more than contain communism, it must actively roll back communism. And in a famous speech in 1983, he called the Soviet Union an evil empire, the focus of evil in the modern world. Reagan reignited the nuclear arms race with a massive expansion of spending on the military and defense. By 1985, the United States was spending half a million dollars a minute on defense, which was four times the spending at the height of the Vietnam War. In the 1980 campaign, Reagan and other Republicans had warned about living beyond our means. But in eight years, Reagan's administration never produced a balanced budget. Yes, they cut domestic spending by something like $100 billion, but those cuts were dwarfed by the $1.6 trillion they spent on defense. And that, plus their tax cuts, tripled the deficit and the debt between 1980 and 1986. And all this spending on nuclear weapons wasn't just expensive, it was dangerous. Reagan talked about nuclear war in a way no other American leaders did. In fact, he sometimes even joked about it. Russian leaders like Brezhnev and Andropov were convinced that Reagan was insane and could not be dealt with. In 1981, Brezhnev and Andropov announced to the Politburo that the United States was actively preparing a nuclear strike on the Soviet Union. And they believed the only way to survive that strike was to strike first. So they gave orders to monitor all signs of impending attack. And if the intent of an American attack was detected for Russia to launch a full nuclear strike. We now know what we didn't know in 1983, which is that we came very close to nuclear war in this era, especially in November 1983, when Western forces, NATO forces, took part in a major training simulation, a war game called Able Archer. The Soviets detected the activity, but they didn't realize it was a simulation, and they went on full alert and came very close to launching their missiles. The military program that was closest to Reagan's heart was the Strategic Defense Initiative, 
SDI, also known as Star Wars. SDI was a high-tech missile defense system, a kind of uh, an imagined system, a hypothetical system of satellites and lasers and anti-ballistic missiles uh, that was intended to defend the United States from an incoming nuclear attack. Reagan announced the program in March 1983, the same month as his evil empire speech. And the nickname Star Wars, after the series of movies, came from critics. It was supposed to ridicule the program, but it didn't work because, of course, everybody likes Star Wars. And Reagan liked Star Wars, and Reagan understood this, and he said... The force is with us. Now, SDI was a dangerous fantasy. It actually threatened the whole logic of nuclear deterrence, and experts were certain that it couldn't work. I mean, here we are 30, 40 years later, and it still can't be or hasn't been done. But at the same time, it was an inspiring kind of vision. It was not a doomsday weapon. It was a giant shield against such weapons floating in space. And Reagan's goal was that it would make nuclear weapons obsolete. I said a minute ago that Reagan's position on world affairs was that containing communism wasn't enough. He wanted to go on the offensive against communism to roll it back. That said, he was reluctant to actually deploy American troops. Not unlike John F. Kennedy, Reagan relied on covert operations, the CIA, and also military aid to groups and governments fighting communism. This often meant supporting right-wing strongmen, dictators who were anything but democratic. So for instance, after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the CIA and the US government sent hundreds of millions of dollars in weapons and aid to the Mujahideen, who were insurgents fighting the Soviets and their puppet government in Afghanistan. After the Soviets finally gave up in Afghanistan in 1989, that money and those weapons would be turned against the United States by the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And in Latin America, the U.S. propped up right-wing military governments in El Salvador and Guatemala against left-wing insurgencies, even as these governments committed violent atrocities against their own citizens. Most famously, in Nicaragua, communist rebels overthrew the U.S.-backed dictator Anastasio Somoza in 1979. And the Reagan administration was determined to overthrow the new Soviet-backed Sandinista government in Nicaragua. So the Reagan government began actively aiding the Contras, who were the kind of the right-wing remnants of Somoza's old National Guard, and were trying to overthrow the left-wing Sandinistas. This was highly controversial. It was one thing for the Americans to support a right-wing government. It was another for them to actively support rebels or insurgents against a sitting government. And in 1982, and again in 83, and again in 84, Congress passed the Boland Amendment, which expressly forbid the U.S. government from aiding the Contras. But the Reagan administration was determined to keep aiding them anyway, so they got increasingly creative in finding secret and ultimately illegal ways to do so. At the same time as all this, the Reagan government was also secretly selling weapons to Iran. The Carter government had made it illegal to sell weapons to Iran after the Iranian revolution and the Iranian hostage crisis. But by 1985, the Reagan administration was doing so anyway and was using the profits to support the Contras in Nicaragua. When all of this got out in 1986, it became the worst scandal of Reagan's presidency. 
Congress held televised hearings on what was called the Iran-Contra affair that revealed a deep pattern of official duplicity and lying and violation of the law. 11 members of the administration were convicted of perjury or destroying documents. Like Watergate before and like the Mueller investigation after, the conversation became consumed by the question, what did the president know and when did he know it? And although there was clear evidence of illegal wrongdoing by his government, Reagan himself claimed to know nothing of it or to have no memory of the affair. And while it certainly hurt his popularity, unlike Nixon, he survived the scandal. If Iran-Contra had broken just a year or two later, or if Reagan's presidency had ended a year or two earlier, I actually think his legacy and certain his, certainly his foreign policy legacy would be remembered quite differently. Iran-Contra seemed at the time like it was just as big a scandal as Watergate. Reagan was unlikely to resign, but he was in real danger of joining Richard Nixon as a president who left office in deep disgrace. But his presidency had one more act, one more big surprise. That, of course, was the peaceful end of the Cold War. Now, note that I do not say that Reagan, quote, ended the Cold War, much less that he should get credit for winning it. But I do think that he played a very crucial role in the remarkable events of the late 1980s. If anyone deserves credit for the peaceful ending of the Cold War, it is the people of Russia and Eastern Europe and the astonishing pro-democracy movements bubbling up for years despite brutal repression that finally broke open in the 1980s. Things like the Solidarity Movement in Poland, the Velvet Revolution or Gentle Revolution in what was then Czechoslovakia, the secession of the Baltic states, and so on. Now, this is a US history course, not a European or Russian history course. I'm not going to tell those stories in any detail. Even if we restrict it to world leaders, the most crucial figure was not Reagan, but Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev introduced radical reforms when he came to power in 1985, and he saw the arms race with the United States as a burden that devoured resources and undermined his attempts at reform. So within a month of coming to power, he arranged to meet with Reagan, first at the Geneva summit in 1985 and the Reykjavik summit in 1986. But Reagan became a crucial partner to Gorbachev. At the low point of his presidency, with Iran-Contra blowing up around him, Gorbachev appeared to offer Reagan a way to win back his place in history, and Reagan had the vision to see it. At the Reykjavik summit in 1986, Gorbachev surprised the American negotiating team by proposing that both the US and Soviet Union eliminate all intermediate range nuclear weapons in Europe. Reagan then surprised Gorbachev and Reagan's own advisors by proposing to eliminate all intermediate and strategic weapons. So Gorbachev then suggested eliminating all nuclear weapons. And Reagan said, well, that's just what I want to do too. And suddenly, without any consultation from their governments, their militaries, the wise men who are supposed to think about all these things carefully and logically, these two leaders were on the brink of abolishing all nuclear weapons. And in a funny way, it was Reagan's naivete, his own lack of understanding about foreign affairs and nuclear strategy that made this possible. 
The same simplicity that made Reagan embrace a dangerous fantasy like Star Wars actually meant that he was more open to Gorbachev's overtures than a so-called foreign policy expert might have been. A generation of nuclear, more than one generation of nuclear strategists and generals and politicians had come to accept the logic of mutual assured destruction. They had come to regard nuclear weapons and the nuclear standoff as a necessary evil, the only way to ensure stability in the nuclear age. Reagan didn't understand this, but his naivete actually made it possible for him to do what no other president had done before and none has done since, which is to seriously call for the complete abolition of nuclear weapons. And so when Gorbachev held out his hand to Reagan, Reagan took it. Alas, they did not reach a deal at Reykjavik, and the sticking point was indeed Star Wars. Gorbachev said that eliminating all nuclear weapons also meant eliminating efforts to militarize space, and that meant SDI. And Reagan would not give up on strategic defense. He insisted that SDI would be a defensive system, like a shield, not an offensive weapon. In fact, he said that the United States would share its SDI technology with the Soviets, but the Soviets didn't believe him and they also didn't see it that way. To them, lasers and missiles in space could only be seen as a massive expansion of the arms race. So no deal was reached at Reykjavik and that was a heartbreaking moment. But even so, the fact that things had gone as far as they did meant that nothing afterwards would be the same. Soon after Reykjavik, the two countries did sign a pretty big arms control agreement, uh, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty of 1987. And then Gorbachev just kept reforming his country anyway. Political reforms, multi-party elections, free travel, the opening of the borders. In the last year of his presidency, Reagan visited Moscow and said the Cold War was over. And he was asked there if he still considered the Soviet Union to be an evil empire. And he said, it was evil until this one man, gesturing to Gorbachev, made all the difference. So how should we remember Ronald Reagan? After he left office, and especially after his death, conservatives decided that he had been the greatest president ever. They decided to forget all the complaining they did through the 1980s that he wasn't conservative enough. They campaigned to put him on the $50 bill and indeed on Mount Rushmore. People on the left are, of course, much more critical for all the reasons I've described today. In some ways, time has been good to Reagan's memory. Few of his successors have been able to unite the American people or to command the American landscape, political landscape, the way that he did. In other ways, time has not been kind to his memory because, because many of the problems he supposedly solved, prosperity, winning the Cold War, restoring America's faith in itself, turn out not to be solved at all. And many of the big problems that America faces today, gross inequality, white supremacy, destruction of the environment, either started or got markedly worse during Reagan's presidency. Now, I still find that I like Reagan. I think I would like Reagan the person. Maybe it's just that I grew up being scared of nuclear war and imprinted on him as the guy who seemed to put those fears to rest. I believe, or maybe I just want to believe that he was a sweet, jovial, warm-hearted guy who you know, could tell a story, could tell a joke, but his policies were what they were and his government did what it did. And we are still living in the world those policies created.
So clearly I can't tell you what to think. And that's, that's as it should be. Thanks very much for watching. I'm a mom.